Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Kimmer. And joining us once again today is our friend Emma Waters, a research associate for life, religion, and family here at the Heritage Foundation. Emma, thanks so much for being back with us today. Thanks for having me back on today. Well, I, I want to think back for, for a moment as we kick off today's show, because there's some interesting conversations happening in our country right now about the SAT and the ACT. And we all remember that morning in high school when it was still dark outside and it was a Saturday and you had to wake up at six and go take a test for four hours and it was miserable. And there's a lot of strong opinions on whether colleges should continue using the ACT and SAT or whether we should disband it and how accurate it is for actually telling if someone's qualified to enter college or not. Um, I have thoughts on this, but let me toss it to you all first. What do you think? Do we need to do we need to axe the ACT and the SAT? So I think maybe 10 years ago I would have said yes because I was going through the traumatic event of, you know, you couldn't – you had like just a certain amount of time to eat your snack and it was very stressful. Um, I think now I'm not so sure maybe a version of ACT, SAT. Maybe we could just have one test rather than two because mm. I, I took the ACT and I remember being very confused by the criteria of the SAT. Um, but I think now just given how schools have changed – probably need some sort of standardized test that kind of gives you an idea of what students actually know. Especially, I mean, we talked last week about Baltimore not having um, many students that are proficient in math. Chicago just came out with a report that said the same thing. That's where I'm from. So, yeah, I kind of am in favor now. (laughs) (laughs) To further affirm that bias, I think we should replace them for the classical learning test. And instead, we just have everyone, you know, read great literature um, Mm. and, of course, learn math through philosophy and logic problems. And then they'll be set up as humans for years to come. Emma, I I love you so much. (laughs) I love your perspective on education. I think it's healthy and there's so much need for that. And I as speaking as a poor test taker, I would be in favor of of at least changing the SAT and ACT and maybe universities not weighing them so much because I had a great GPA, but ooh, <laughs> I don't, I have nothing to brag about as far as my ACT and SAT scores. So I, I think for so long they were weighted really heavily. So there, there definitely needs to be some reevaluation there and we'll introduce more great books. That, <laughs> that is so important. All right. Well, speaking of controversial things, differences of opinions, We got quite the lineup. Um, Don't worry, we are ending with some pretty positive and hopeful news at the end of the show. The middle, though, get ready, guys. (laughs) Buckle your seatbelts. It's going to get a little wild. So, Kristen, go ahead and let us know what we have queued up. For sure. Up on today's Problematic Women, Congress is considering an amendment that would erase the distinction between men and women. The implications could be devastating. We break down what you need to know. And World War III was trending on Twitter this week. Is it really likely? While we can't tell the future, we will tell you why it's a topic of conversation right now. Plus, there is a move of God happening on college campuses that we can't ignore. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Women of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find the stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. Those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. Now, lawmakers have a way of branding the worst policies with the nicest names. We see this over and over. And today, we're talking about one of those policies. Its formal title is the ERA, short for the Equal Rights Amendment. And who could be against equal rights? We all want this. I mean, Emma, right, like this is something everybody wants. And Emma, I have to give you credit here because you are the one who has brought me up to speed and educated me on the Equal Rights Amendment, on what it is, on why it won't create equality. Uh, But it will, in fact, erase the distinction between men and women in society. So Emma, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here to break this down. Will you first just share a little bit of the history? Because I think that will be helpful in understanding what's going on today with this amendment. 
But how did the Equal Rights Amendment come to be a topic of conversation? What's the backstory here? The Equal Rights Amendment was actually first introduced in Congress in the 1920s, either 1920 or 1923. And since then, it's been a recurring constitutional amendment that has been discussed year after year. And so the amendment is simple. It, it says that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. And then it gives Congress the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions that are made in this amendment. So if the ERA was passed, it would ratify the Constitution of the United States to provide equal rights, or so they say, between men and women. But the problem with the ERA is that it views every form of legal distinction between men and women as a form of discrimination. So think really obvious examples. So for example, we have the draft. Um, and so the draft is a selective service requirement that all all men are required to register for in order to receive federal aid so that in the case of a war, if we need more people to fight, um, we have a list of men to call on. Um, but if the ERA was passed, this would actually remove the distinction between men and women and would simply say that every man and woman who is born would have to register for the draft. So think um, women who typically hold down the home front, who take the jobs of men who are pregnant and bearing children in the time of war would now be subject to the difficulties of war. Um, and it's important to note, right, that no one is stopping women from fighting in combat, um, but they are giving them the privileged option to not go into war, especially when the home front um, requires more from them in a way that's different from men. So we have had the ERA come up for multiple years in the 1970s. It really hit its heyday with Betty Friedan and the feminist movement. And of course, our hero, Phyllis Schlafly, mm -hmm. who almost single-handedly killed the ERA, making the point that the ERA um, actually harms women because it removes these sorts of protections that they've relied on for many generations. And then since then, um, they the ERA actually Inspired in 1982. So they gave it a seven-year ratification period. If they can get enough states to vote for it and to be on board, then the ERA could have been a part of the Constitution. Um, but in 1982, they didn't have enough states. Um, some states actually rescinded their vote, and the ERA expired, except those on the left have refused to recognize this. Mm -hmm. Okay, so wait, it expired, but yet at the same time it didn't expire because here it is again and we're having this conversation and Congress is getting ready to consider voting on it. Well, and so this is the important distinction. Um, the joint House and Senate resolution that's on the floor right now is a resolution to push to remove the expiration date from the Equal Rights Amendment. So if this resolution were to pass, it wouldn't actually ratify the Equal Rights Amendment into the Constitution, but it would remove the pesky little expiration date mm. um, and would mean that they would effectively have an indefinite amount of time to ratify it. Um, the problem, though, is, is this is is just a procedural nightmare. When a legislative action, when an amendment expires, it disappears. It's no longer actually a part of our congressional system. Um, and, and so what's happened here is sort of the refusal to recognize this. Um, and, and what's even funnier is you have Supreme Court justices like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who as late as the 90s effectively said, guys, the ERA expired in the 80s. It's time to either start over or pick a new fight, but you can't ratify something that's expired. Um, and yet the resolution that's before the House and the Senate right now would still try to remove that expiration date so they could later vote on the Equal Rights Amendment. Wow. It's <laughs> a lot there. Okay. Yeah. So give us a little bit of a sense, though, of what an America looks like if if Congress succeeds in, in those who are pushing for the Equal Rights Amendment are able to get um, that uh, expiration date removed, and then you know whether it takes one year, multiple years, whatever, it's passed, it becomes a part of our Constitution. What changes in America in a world with the Equal Rights Amendment on the books? 
Yeah, so that is a fantastic question. And it's important to note that a lot of the laws that the ERA wanted to address in the 70s um, through this constitutional amendment have actually been addressed through legislation that's Mm. narrowly tailored to the problem at hand. So think the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. um, That was a fantastic measure that ensured that women who became pregnant weren't fired from their jobs or withheld from bonuses. And it even provided opportunities like like rooms at your job so that you could effectively care for your children while continuing to work, especially for women who needed to. Um, And so initially in the 70s, they said, well, the ERA would be good because it would help women in the workforce. Um, But they couldn't um, at the same time tell you all the other ways that the ERA would negatively impact the United States, except for people like Phyllis Schlafly. Um, and, And so today we already have many of the legislative efforts that protect women, like the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, like Title IX. Um, But if it were passed today, what it would do is it would dissolve any uh, distinctions, legal distinctions between men and women in the law. So think transgenderism. Right now, um, and Ines Stepman has made this point many times, when it comes to transgenderism, um, take Leah Thomas. He identifies as a girl and then says that because he is a girl, based on his internal sense of gender, right, he has the right to swim on the women's team. If the ERA was passed, it would it, Leah Thomas wouldn't have to be Leah Thomas. He could just be William. And he would mm-hmm. simply say, you cannot discriminate against me based on sex. And so I, as a man, want to swim on the female team, and therefore I can. And so it would take even this transgender moment to a whole new level and just utterly dissolve our understanding of sex. And so think about locker rooms um, or bathrooms or even women's prisons. You no longer have this small barrier of men identifying as a woman. You simply have men saying, I want to be there. Um, And and so the threat that this poses to women is immense because there is no longer a sex-segregated space or any sense of safety and protection um, to keep men out of those places. It it would just like utterly dissolve it, which is insane. Um, And so I think that's one of the biggest ones. But then second, um, when it comes to abortion, this is a huge area. Um, So Phyllis Schlafly back in the 70s, one of her huge issues with the ERA is that it would basically provide um, a fundamental right to an abortion. Because if you can't deny um, someone or abridge their opportunities based on sex, then the argument goes that a woman has a right to an abortion because she, like a man, has a right not to be pregnant. So if a man can't be pregnant, then a woman has a right not to be pregnant, even if she's already pregnant with a child, right? And clearly has that biological capability that men don't have. And so with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, this actually was a major blow against many of the efforts of those on the left. And so... They're pushing the Equal Rights Amendment as a way to secure reproductive rights once again. So if the Equal Rights Amendment was eventually ratified into the Constitution, it would provide a new basis for an absolute right to an abortion. Because, again, if men have the right not to be pregnant, then women have the right not to be pregnant. Gosh, that was a lot. It just feels (laughs) as though the ERA is kind of challenging a lot of the problems that voters have voted on and and lawmakers have, you know, also voted on. And and it doesn't necessarily reflect what, you know, our elections are saying. It feels kind of like a backdoor way to get everything that the left wants, which is terrifying. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, And this was the criticism of it in the 1970s, was that uh, voters have made their stances very clear. Um, States that don't want abortion have um, passed pro-life laws to protect children from the earliest stages. States that want to have a more permissive structure have allowed that. Um, But on the abortion topic in particular, whether voters have been for or against um, abortion, one of the things that's been consistently true is that voters don't want taxpayer money going to fund abortions, Mm -hmm. and they don't want government um, enabling those through their money. Um, With the Equal Rights Amendment, um, there are about 20 states that passed a state-level Equal Rights Amendment, which actually gives us a good idea of what it would look like on a national level if it was amended into our um, national constitution. And so in New Mexico, for example, they do have a state ERA. And after that went into effect, um, lawyers are 
argued that because the state provides a Medicare um, and other forms of health insurance, that it's actually a form of discrimination that violates their state-level ERA not to cover abortions, too. So then New Mexico had taxpayer-funded, um, government-funded abortions available as a part of this. Um, and, and so we, it gives us a really good idea of what this would look like on the federal level. And again, uh, like you were saying, this is something that voters, whether they're for or against abortion, are largely against on the whole. Um, but the ERA would just open the door wide for that uh, and, and really take the power out of the voters and out of the people and put it in uh, courts and, and in other like congressional leaders. And timing wise, there's a vote happening soon, right? In, in the coming days. That's that initial sort of procedural so what we have coming up is on Tuesday, February 28th, there is the first hearing on the Equal Rights Amendment. And so effectively, they'll have um, a few speakers who are for the ERA. They'll have a few speakers who are against the ERA talk about um, the merits of removing this um, expiration date from the amendment. So on the right, you're going to see arguments about the procedural aspect of it. So arguing that it's already expired. Mm -hmm. And based on the framework of it, you can't just change it. Like it's effectively disappeared. Um, and then at the same time, you'll also have um, someone on the right arguing about the substantive concerns that we've laid here, that the ERA is anti-woman um, when it comes to sports, the draft and sex segregated spaces. Um, because think about this, like how many women rely on sports scholarships um, mm. to yeah. to to reach upward mobility, to get into college, to start their career? How many women um, find such health, um, like mental health and refreshment in the sports they play and how this is just going to destroy it? Um, they'll make arguments about how the ERA is anti-mother. Um, so things like WIC, the Mothers, um, Infants and Children Act, right? would be unconstitutional under the Equal Rights Amendment. So these laws that we've passed that are specifically tailored towards vulnerable women and children in our society would be a form of discrimination. Mm. It's so ridiculous. It's um, so, ridiculous. so we have this first hearing coming up on Tuesday, which will be a huge opportunity to really set the stage. Um, and then we expect to vote on whether or not to remove the expiration date to come sometime in March or April. Okay. Well, we're going to be following... You're reporting on this, Emma, because you are you're in the weeds here. So mm -hmm. thank you for keeping us abreast of this really, really important conversation. Um, and for anyone who wants to follow what Emma is is writing about this issue, you can find all of her research at the Heritage Foundation website. And we're going to keep talking about it on the show just because it, it is such a really important issue. And honestly, I'm a little bit shocked that it's not being talked about more when I found out the gravity of this situation. It's like, Wow, why why isn't this getting more press? Why isn't this forefront in everyone's minds? Because this could literally change society as a whole in very, very dramatic ways. Um, so, Emma, thank you for keeping us updated. But lots more to get to ahead, uh, including information about what exactly is going on in the world. It feels like over the weekend, I checked the news on, like, Sunday. It was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> How did the world fall apart in the last 24 hours? But here we are. But before we get into that conversation, I want to tell you all about a super fun way that you can stay connected with Problematic Women throughout the week. Problematic Women is on Instagram. You can catch highlights of our shows, fun reels, inspiring social graphics, and just stay informed on what is happening in the news, what is happening in the world around us by following the Problematic Women Instagram account. So go ahead. Open up your Instagram app and just look for that bright pink logo. It's safe to say that the world is an incredibly different place than it was a year ago. And after nearly one year of war with Russia, the anniversary actually is on Friday, um, the one-year anniversary. The Ukrainian people have defied expectations and held on to their country's independence and sovereignty, which explains President Biden's unannounced visit to Kiev this week, marking the first presidential visit actually to the Ukraine in 15 years. Wow. Um, he, he went on Monday and he basically went to signal our unwavering support to the, the Ukrainian people. And this visit actually was just after Vice President Harris accused Russia of committing crimes against humanity at Munich Security Conference. Um, still, 
Russian President Putin is not backing down. Associate editor of the UK's Telegraph, Dominic Nichols, explained that he actually appears to be putting more resources to preparing his military for spring war fighting. That's something incredibly important. I didn't realize mm-hmm. timing-wise. Uh, they call it Rasputsitsa, I think. Huh. <laughs> it's uh, essentially when the roads become too muddy for real combat to occur, the area, especially in the spring with the melting snow, it it just makes for war fighting to be much more difficult. So it kind of gives both sides some time to rest, some time to train, and some time to prepare for what lies ahead. Oh, that's interesting. There's a, there's a ton changing on the front line, but behind the scenes, much remains uncertain, especially after Chinese President Xi Jinping announced his plans to visit Moscow for a summit with Putin. The plot thickens. <laughs> Beijing's claims that the summit is simply meant to push for multi-party peace talks and to discourage nuclear action it, it, are there, but many remain skeptical. It's hard to forget that China benefited greatly from this war and even funded it to some extent by purchasing Russian oil and maintaining a no-limit friendship with Putin. Even more concerning was Putin's suspension of New START, that last remaining nuclear arms control pact with the United States, which essentially keeps us both in check. We kind of check in on one another with how many ballistic missiles. <laughs> I know that's a weird, it's kind of like a wellness check, but nuclear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how many weapons yeah, do you the have that could destroy the world? Yes, the <laughs> yeah. ultimate, and, and that's good, right? That's a really great thing good for accountability. the, the yeah. two biggest nuclear powers to have with one another. Um, so hours after his very, very anti-West address, Russia's foreign ministry said Moscow would still respect that treaty and the the treaty's caps on nuclear weapons and would continue to exchange information on test launches of ballistic missiles with the United States. But still, I mean, we've seen things. They invaded Ukraine. There's a lot of uncertainty with what is coming out of And for them to say, like, we'll still follow it, but you can't really, like, look behind the curtain to actually know what we're doing is, like, I really don't trust that Russia is actually going to follow it it's if scary. they don't actually have formal accountability to follow it. Yeah, and they've, they've shown that they're just not reliable, both them and China. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot to unpack there. I think what's most concerning is the, the blank check approach that the Biden administration has kind of adopted when it comes to the Ukraine. I think we can all agree that we need to help the Ukraine, but that there needs to be some sort of this is our success metric. This is what we're trying to do with that money. Yeah. Um, but what are what are your thoughts? Do you do you think the world leaders are starting to prepare for a longer war than expected? I mean, this invasion lasted a lot longer than expected. It did. I I had a conversation uh, last week on the Daily Signal podcast with Victoria Coates here at the Heritage Foundation, who we're going to talk about a little bit more later in the show. But one of the things that she said was, you know, even with her expertise in foreign policy, you know, she has worked in the Trump administration. She's she's worked in the defense space, very knowledgeable on this issue. But she's like, if you had told me a year ago that fast forward a year, Russia and Ukraine would still be at war, like I definitely would not have believed you. So things things have continued in, in such a way that have surprised a lot of people. Uh, and I think what we're seeing now is this really pivotal moment. And you have to think there's a lot of conversations that are happening behind closed doors um, that are, I imagine, we may read about in history books in years to come about what were the conversations that were happening around the possibility of war and what that would look like. And it sounds weird to say pros and cons of war, but (laughs) that's often what's being weighed. Um, And when it comes to Biden's approach to Ukraine, I, you know, we obviously need to be supporting Ukraine and there needs to be strong support there because it's in the world's interest to keep Russia in check and to not have Russia expand its power even further. Um, and at the same time, one thing that Victoria Coates said was, you know, it sort of feels like the U.S. is, is it has that blank check. It's just sort of, yeah, 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 whatever you need, whatever you ask for, we got you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's not strategic that we're throwing money at an issue and there doesn't, if there is a really specific plan and a strategy that the U.S. has, they are not readily sharing it with the American people. And there ought to be more accountability in relation to the resources that we are handing over to Ukraine. 
Yeah, and on that, there was an AP poll that came out this past week or last week that said that only 48% of Americans actually supported sending more arms to Ukraine. Um, And this is notable because it's down from 60% in just Mm. May of this year. Mm. So I think the American people writ large are asking some of those same questions, Virginia, and are starting to have some of those um, same hesitations um, when it comes to exactly why we're just, why we've written a blank check to Ukraine knowing that other nations in the EU who have just as much, if not more, of a vested interest um, in protecting Ukraine um, and keeping Russian aggression at bay um, aren't also chipping in to the extent that the United States are. And then on top of that, you have... um, a number of crises happening in Ohio and across the United States from fentanyl coming across the border, a totally unprotected open border, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That is going to take millions, if not billions of dollars to effectively address them. And and so many are asking the question, why are we sending so much to Ukraine and and leaving our own nation out to dry? Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important to discuss as well, because a lot of countries are now struggling with the fact that they've sent all this equipment, sent all of these resources to the Ukraine, but they haven't restocked their own. And actually, another interesting report from The Telegraph was Rishi Sunak is considering increasing defense funding in the UK. You've already seen Poland has increased their defense funding by 4%. Estonia increased their uh, spending um, by 3%. A lot of European NATO nations are are almost preparing for for war, it seems like, um, which is why I think that, you know, we have our VP, we have our president all in Europe kind of evaluating the situation. And we've got to really look back at home and consider what are we doing for ourselves to ensure that if something goes wrong, you know, now China's getting more involved. And granted, we're becoming nuclear peers. We're not quite there, but we've we've got reports that are showing that they're on the way to being nuclear peers. Um, What are we doing to ensure that Americans are protected? We're in D.C. What are we doing to ensure our capital is protected? And that democracy, that's what we're fighting for, right? At the end of the day, that's why uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine is unjustified and and why we're standing firm in that. Yeah, there's just a lot of uncertainty with all of that. Well, and then on top of that, you have the military releasing a report that Mm -hmm. they had historically low um, turnout when it comes to people registering for all branches of the military. Mm -hmm. Um, And this has been a pretty solid decline in the last year, couple of years, as more woke policies have been pushed. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so I think there's a very real question of like, how exactly is the United States preparing? Because while the United States... um, clearly is the beacon of democracy in the world. Ultimately, first and foremost, the responsibility in America is for the American people. It's a, it's safety and prosperity. And so, you know, even thinking back to the beloved play Hamilton, right, oh. um, where they're debating whether or not to send support to France, right? Mm. Um, and so you have this, like, great Jefferson-Hamilton, like, rap um, battle <laughs> that is historically inaccurate, but I love it, so <laughs> it's fine. Um, but effectively, right, like, this is the same point they make, where Hamilton is like, hey, like, this is just a lot of riots taking place, and I really hope this leads to democracy, but why are we going to send mm-hmm. so much of our resources when mm-hmm. we really need them at home right now to a war that's just a little unclear exactly what the strategy is? Um, and I think we should ask that question today, especially given how much the United States has already sent to Ukraine. Um, the United States isn't very strong, and frankly, it's so impressive that Ukraine has lasted a year. It um, it's not like they're going to be a great ally should things go downhill. Like we are taking on a huge liability and I'm not really seeing where we're getting another powerful nation on board to help us um, should war come from China, from Russia, from Iran or another place. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's another an, another issue that we're starting to look at. Uh, another nuclear power, North Korea, has just stepped into the world stage um, for slightly a less controversial reason. But weeks ago, Kim Jong-un's daughter was featured on, I, I guess, a postage stamp. It's it's cute. It's very not what we know in America to be a, a postage stamp. It's like blue, like very aqua blue. Interesting. Um, But she's adorable. She's only 10. And she was actually also the center of attention at the 75th anniversary of the Korean People's Army launch. I I don't know exactly what it was. It was some big party. Yeah. Yeah. 
But what do you guys think is going on there? Like putting a 10-year-old, that's what she's believed to be a basketball player from the America actually confirmed her to be about 10 years old because he held her when he visited them. Wow. Um, do you do you think there's a reason there's this sudden parading of her around? I feel like there could be a couple things going on here. Uh, when when not that I am an expert on totalitarian <laughs> nations, but there is a lot of grooming and a lot of brainwashing that takes place. So I think if Kim Jong Un has decided that this is his successor that that starts very early on and being put in the public spotlight and being around crowds and exposure to this is how you show um, you show power and, and even maybe, a, you know, getting a young person used to that, you know, feeling of kind of being fawned over from mm-hmm. large crowds, you know, that that's really so central to um, to these very, very totalitarian countries, which North Korea is number one. Um, is having a society that you know almost thinks of you like a god, enforcing that really, and so I, I think that could be an element of you know if she's taking over eventually, even if it's not for thirty years, uh, this process likely starts very young, and then I I also do wonder though if on the world stage it's an attempt to look a little bit more friendly, a little mm-hmm. less intimidating, you know. Uh, you know, this this dictator in North Korea, but, you know, he's not that bad. Look, he's hanging out with his 10-year-old daughter. Isn't that sweet? It, it humanizes. Uh, and it could be a, a dual reality. I think both can very much be true. But everything in that relation, I feel like, that North Korea does, there's reason behind it and there's manipulation behind it. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Virginia. And I I think it's interesting that, too, um, she has a brother and another Mm -hmm. sister. And so why he chose the daughter is Mm -hmm. particularly interesting to me. But I I think your latter point on the sort of feminine energy, think like the Joan of Arc Mm -hmm. um, effect that it has. Mm -hmm. Um, If you need to rally a nation and you want to get them on board and sympathetic with you fast, you put an innocent-looking little girl Mm -hmm. front and center And how are you going to say no to that, Mm -hmm. right? And that seems maybe to be what's going on there. Um, But at the same time, North Korean dictators have had a huge flair for the theatrical for generations. Um, So the Real Dictators podcast kind of like goes through um, like multiple generations of just like creating these um, basically like live movie sets where like people are given roles to play with the dictators um, and that's like their reality that they create and so who knows like what sort of movie script that they're effectively writing here uh, and, and like what sort of narrative they're trying to frame around her um, as this sort of like Mulan like hero to lead the nation. I think it's I think it's funny too that you know here in the U.S. we're focused on the ERA right and we're trying to totally get rid of of sex and identity in that capacity but you're looking at a totalitarian government and they're really leaning in to look at feminism. We're great. We, we're really <laughs> progressive. And it's it's just so ironic. Yes. OK, so I've written on this before and I just think it's fascinating. So like take Soviet Union, like Stalin, he actually implemented more pro-family, pro-mother measures than even the United States have. Like it, he's similar to Hungary's policy today. Right. Um, so anytime a woman had over three kids, like he gave her a ton of bonuses. Um, and he found ways of like making pro-family messaging part of his narrative. Um, and so like the messaging, the policies behind it. And this was a totalitarian government, right, that like killed like 29 million of their own people. Um, and so you have this like just crazy. Um, yeah, you just have this like crazy like breakdown where you're like, OK, totalitarian governments recognize the difference between men and women. They kill a ton of men and women, but like at least they recognize the difference between the two. Um, oh and then they play that up for their own benefit because ultimately like people recognize truth and they respond to it accordingly even if they're using it for very evil ends at the end of the day yeah mm. well it's it's safe to say there's a lot happening in the world uh and you know i, I think it can get overwhelming and people are are asking that question we're all asking that question is war imminent um like i said on on tuesday world war three was 
trending on Twitter. It, it is humorous to see how our generation reacts to situations. I remember this with COVID, but everything that was being posted was all just like memes and gifts. <laughs> like I feel like this is how we as a generation process hard things initially. It's like, we'll make a meme about it. Uh, but here we are. But wow, with all of the craziness happening in the world, I'm glad to say that there are some positive things happening and some really powerful things happening in the earth right now. So some of you may have heard about the move of God that has been happening on the campus of Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. This started on February 8th. There was a group of about 15 students that stayed after a chapel service, and they just stayed in the chapel and were talking, they were praying, we were worshiping. It wasn't planned. This was all spontaneous. And then a few more people came and joined them, and more sort of came throughout the day. And it was into the afternoon and students were still gathering, they were still worshiping, they were still praying. And the university, they ended up sending out an email to all of the students and saying, hey, you know, this is what's happening. We, we invite you to come back to the chapel and, and join. We, we, don't, we don't know what's going on, uh, but obviously the Lord is doing something. Well, uh, that was that was two weeks ago, and it's been just nonstop prayer and worship, and it has totally exploded, and people have literally been traveling from all over the country to go to Asbury's campus and just see what is God doing here. And it hasn't stopped at the campus of Asbury. This has started spreading to other college campuses, to Lee University in Tennessee, to Samford in Alabama, Cedarville in Ohio, yeah, even a little bit at Baylor in Texas. And it's just, it's really wild. And I think the timing is significant given the tension that we're seeing in the world. And yet the Lord is moving. And Emma, I would love to have your perspective on this because you graduated from Lee University. And just like Asbury, God has really started to move at Lee University. That was uh, the second campus that started really experiencing the presence of the Lord just shortly after Asbury did. Um, have you talked to anyone on the campus? What are your thoughts about what's happening at your alma mater? Yeah, it's been incredible um, catching up with current students because I, I worked in residential life and housing as a chaplain and also just as a resident assistant for most of my time there um, and got to really know the spiritual life of the campus pretty closely. And so connecting with current students and even friends of mine that work there now, um, they've all stressed just how organic um, mm -hmm. this move has been, similar to descriptions of Asbury, where that where, where they're saying that this is not performative, this is not sentimentalism. Um, you don't have students who are up there trying to like make a name for themselves, right? Um, they've continued to have some of the professors and spiritual directors speak, but for the most part, um, it was just a long um, time of worship. Um, and like every great revival, it begins with repentance, right? Yep. And so just mass repentance breaking out. Um, there are reports of healings and of people coming to salvation. And, and even just on a more wholesome level, just groups of students breaking apart and praying for one another, like mm -hmm. truly the James 5, like pray for one another that you may be healed. And like that's, there's so much power and salvation that comes from like the laying on of hands of other Christians and hearing those prayers just prayed over you time and time again. Um, it's been incredible um, and, and like really encourages me to see like my school that I was a part of for so long um, really giving itself in worship um, in such a powerful and seemingly very authentic way. Yeah. Well, I was interested. There's a podcast called Made for This with Jenny Allen and um, Jenny went to Asbury and just talked to students, talk to the president, alumni, just to sort of ask them like, hey, what's going on here? How is this spreading? How did this start? And I thought that one of the young women that Jenny spoke with had a really good explanation. Her name is Samantha. She's an alumni of Asbury University. And she's at the chapel and she's just sort of saying, hey, this is what I've been experiencing and this is what's happening. So let's go ahead and roll that clip from the Made for This podcast. Honestly, revival has been something that we've been praying for for a really, really long time. Um, and so when I heard that chapel never ended on Wednesday, um, as soon as I was free, I was like, I got to be there. I don't know. A lot of the thoughts when it was like first happening was like a lot of people were really skeptical. A lot of people were like, is this really revival? Is this really what we've been praying for? Um, and a lot of people were like really weary of, of like calling it that too early. Um, but then just as it's gone on, I think it's just 
like it's so evident that God is doing something so unique and so special that it's like we can't just say like oh it's an extra long worship service you know like it's truly like it's so evident that the spirit is here and moving in like a specific way Hmm. so why do you all think that this started on college campuses i i love that it did but like why with why with gen z why do you think that we're seeing this move of god break out at asbury and and lee and specifically with the college crowd yeah, I, I was thinking about this earlier today. So um, in generations past, they had what you would call tent meetings mm-hmm. um, or even these like weekly scheduled revivals. So the Southern Baptist Church that I grew up in um, every week over the summer, we had revival and we would bring in a special preacher. They would do food. Um, and so for six nights of that week, you would be at the church for a solid two to three hours hearing the word, singing psalms um, and, and hopefully praying and like repenting of sins, right? Um, or you had tent meetings in different um, denominations that were just these long times of worship and repentance and of prayer. Um, But largely, these don't actually occur anymore. It doesn't really line up with um, our schedules. It doesn't line up sort of with like the cultural moment we're in. So it makes a lot of sense to me that this would occur on college campuses because those are some of the few places where people still have like a pretty relaxed schedule. And it's kind of (laughs) expected that like, oh, on my to-do list today is like go to class and then just like hang out with people and see what happens. Um, And they tend to have, I think this is the important part, they tend to have margin built into their schedules and a flexibility and willingness for other people or the Lord to move unexpectedly in their day-to-day, whether that's just a conversation on the street with people. Normally, I'm running late for a meeting, um, and so there's not that opportunity in how we live our lives often. But on a college campus, there is, and they have that flexibility to just worship all day or all night um, and really invest in that in a way that I don't think you have in like our broader society. Mm-hmm. But I also think, to some extent, you know, there's been this huge attack on on college campuses, so it mm. almost makes sense that God would target those mm. um, those areas specifically, just yeah. because, you know, where he he is always with us. He understands what's going around uh, and what's happening. He's in control, and so it just again, they said they could feel the spirit. They could feel <clears throat> what was around them, and and all honor to God on this one. I think he knew where he needed to be. And yeah. for that reason, he went to Asbury and then went from there, like yeah. the the fire of the Holy Spirit. Yes. I, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think in the Asbury clip we just listened to, she mentioned right away that they have been praying for revival. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something I can testify to at Lee University as well. There's actually a prayer group that meets at this church that like overlooks our entire campus Um, and they meet multiple nights a week but one night Tuesday night is specifically devoted to praying for revival at our university they've been meeting for easily the past seven years because it was established when I got there and it's been a few years since I've left and so this is seven years of a weekly Mm -hmm. meeting where students and other leaders are praying for revival Um, and and so it's not then surprising that now we're starting to see the fruit of that and the Lord like you saying answering those prayers where there is a willingness and a hunger for him and I think you can trace that with every revival that has happened in America there's always been prayer as the foundation, that there's been a group of individuals who have been asking God for it. And when we use that term revival, everyone, I feel like, has certain assumptions about what that word means. But just keeping it really simple, it's it's uh, an outpouring of really the presence of God, um, but it's accompanied by prayer, by worship, and by repentance. And Emma, I know you mentioned that, but re- repentance is key. We saw this with the first Great Awakening and with the second Great Awakening with Azusa Street, that there's this element of turning away from sin and turning back to God, uh, and that that creates space and it creates a room for the Lord to even come more with his presence. And I think it's it's really cool that that this is happening for Gen Z. Like, I feel like my mother heart is like, mm-hmm. yes, they need this. Like, mm-hmm. they deserve it. And, you know, I, I feel like that generation, like, they've grown up immersed in in social media, which I argue has created all of their issues with anxiety. And, like, there's just a, a lot of, of junk that this generation is having to deal with that previous generations just didn't. Um, and I love the fact that the Lord is using them and touching them because at the end of the day, 
they're our future. And it's beautiful to see this raw and, and real hunger and how they're making themselves vulnerable and available to God. Because uh, the Lord so, I think, uses that just when we come humbly and it's like, okay, God, all of my life is yours. Um, the Lord's like, okay, say no more. Uh, so it, it's really exciting and, and I think significant given the moment in history that we're living in. Yeah, and I want to give a lot of credit to um, the campus leaders, mm-hmm. both Asbury and Lee, and those are the two I can at least like testify to personally, um, but hopefully the others as well, um, who have really taken, I think, a very wise um, and spiritually sound approach to this. Um, so uh, they announced yesterday that Lee would also be closing their chapel um, and would be suspending the revival. Um, and part of the reason is security threats and concerns. Um Asbury attracted, I think, some unsafe persons. Um, Lee was starting to attract some unsafe persons, and they they didn't want to walk foolishly in this. But one of the things that students on campus really stressed was that um, in order to know the the true nature of a revival or of anything, you have to see its fruit. Mm-hmm. And so while there, it's incredibly powerful and it's huge that there's this ongoing, nearly 24-7 worship service happening, the university really wanted to ensure that students weren't just getting caught up in emotionalism, but mm-hmm. were really seeking and encountering the Lord in the quiet place, right? Mm-hmm. Which is where scripture really teaches us that Christ meets us. Um, and so now they're actually encouraging students to continue this fervor and passion for the Lord, um, for encountering him, but doing so in your dorms with your peers and small groups. Um, And I think they're really hoping to see um, that this is not just, yeah, this isn't just some sort of emotional expression. Um, And so they might begin the public services in a week or two, um, but they really want to see where the heart of students are. Um, So I think the next week, just continuing to pray that the Lord would work powerfully in them and that this movement would continue in the hidden places, right? And Mm -hmm. like the prayer closets um, Mm -hmm. of people's lives and not just when you know you're going to be on social media and covered by yeah. journalists and people at the Heritage Foundation in D.C. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, so they're they're shifting, like you said, I mean, they're shifting things at, at Asbury, and um, they're shutting down kind of the 24-7 nature of it, but they're still going to have services, but their, their services in their chapel are for young people 16 to 25, which I, I love. I'm like, yes, the young people are the ones that need to be in there, but there's conversations about, okay, what does this look like as it spreads and I think uh, we cannot limit the Lord. And I fully believe that this is something that we're going to continue to see fruit from. Um, and we're going to continue to see God's presence because I think as a nation, wow, we are hungry for it. And we're ready for it because we can pass good laws and we can elect good leaders. But the Lord can do so much that can never be done uh, you know, legislatively or this, his, his power to change hearts and minds and, uh, and really bring, bring goodness into society um, goes so much further than anything that, that lawmakers can ever do. So we certainly celebrate and just bless what's happening on these college campuses. But stay tuned because up next, we're going to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Five days a week, two episode formats, one mission to deliver the news you care about and analysis on the biggest issues facing America. The Daily Signal podcast brings you two episodes every day in the same podcast feed. Each morning, catch interviews with policymakers, leading experts and conservative activists as we discuss some of the greatest challenges facing our country and offer solutions for a brighter future. And every weekday at 5 p.m., we bring you the top news of the day. These are the headlines you care about. Subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss out on our morning interviews or evening news. Now it is that time once again, one of our favorite times of the week here at Problematic Women. It is time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to... Victoria Coates. So if you want to learn more about Ukraine and want to dive deeper into that conversation and what on earth is happening, 
on the world stage, then you need to check out Victoria Coates, her writing, her research here at the Heritage Foundation. Like I mentioned earlier on the show, I had her on the Daily Signal podcast last week, and she she is just a brilliant mind. She is the uh, International Affairs and National Security Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation, a, a research fellow in that research center at the Heritage Foundation. She worked for Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. She served as a senior advisor for national security in Senator Ted Cruz's office. She also served in the Trump administration. She, I mean, she's one of those people that when I talk to, it's just like, wait, I I don't know how there are people that are this smart <laughs> on the earth. But it, it's amazing to see someone who is so intelligent, uh, but also so humble and who's so knowledgeable and who shares her wisdom on these big issues so willingly. Uh, and it's uh, it's fair to say that she is definitely a problematic woman. So I, I want to share just a little bit of a clip of the conversation that I had with her on the Daily Signal podcast last week, because I recently heard about a situation happening during the war where Russia is um, actually taking children from Ukraine and putting them in re-education camps in Russia. And my mind was just blown by this. It was like, what on earth is happening? So I asked her, I said, what do we know about this? And here's what she had to say. This is just so horrific. And it is a wake-up call to anybody who has any illusions that Vladimir Putin could be a, a, a partner, some kind of rational actor, some sort of... Uh, you know, even I've heard him described as a Christian conservative. I mean, those words should turn to ash in anybody's mouth if they read about this. It's been going on since the early days of the war. The Russian soldiers have been charged to prey on vulnerable children. So they go into orphanages, uh, for example, uh, halfway homes where children might be, and they literally capture them confiscate their Ukrainian passports, issue them Russian passports, and then send them back to Russia to become Russians. Because bear in mind, one of the dirty little secrets about Russia is that their population is shrinking radically, and this war certainly doesn't help them. So they've got a bad demographic problem. And one of the things they're trying to do is literally steal the youth of Ukraine to try to bolster up their dying population. So it, you know, what he has done is not only weaponize, for example, energy. He's weaponized food. He's now weaponizing children. This is no way a reasonable, you know, historically based effort. This is the desperate act of, of a, a brutal dictator to try to reverse the failing fortunes of his country. And this, this is just one really particularly ugly, but I think revealing aspect of this war. Wow. So lots there. Again, if you want to keep up with Victoria Coates, you can find her work uh, both on, on the Daily Signal website and the Heritage Foundation website. She's brilliant. Yeah, no, she I get to work with her almost every day. And I jealous. yeah, every day she's got some sort of update. She's just really incredible. Yeah. <laughs> well, Emma, thank you for joining today. We appreciate your time. This is always so fun. Uh, but we are going to leave it there for this week's edition of Prolong for Me. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Yes. As conservatives, we so need your support in the podcast world. And we love seeing your ratings, your reviews come in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, wherever you like to listen. It makes a huge difference to us. So thank you in advance. And thank you to all of those who have taken the time to leave those ratings and reviews. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.